and welcome to a special edition of Historians of the Movies podcast. I am your host and creator, Jason Herbert, and every single week we are bringing you discussions about history and film and film and history and everything else in between. And this week, and for the next nine weeks, we're going to be bringing you something special. We're talking about Apple TV's Masters of the Year, the new World War II drama series brought to you by Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg, a sequel, if you will, to Band of Brothers in the Pacific. And I brought for you two amazing scholars, two friends of mine who focus on bombers and World War II. How convenient for us. I'm talking about Dr. Sarah Myers and Dr. Luke Truxaw. Guys, how are you today? Doing great. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. Excited. Luke's talk, Luke, Luke is excited because we. this is our second time trying to record this pod. Uh, the last time Luke said he was excited, his computer said no and logged out of the podcast. So uh, Sarah and I spent like five minutes making metaphors about bomber pilots in World War II with Luke's internet. Um, so guys, I am so excited for you guys. We've been talking about this for a while. Um, this is a long gestating project on the part of Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg. It felt like it was going to be forever. In some ways, I didn't know that, the, you know, didn't even know if we'd ever get to see this show on air. I know you guys are both excited about it. We're going to jump right into it this week. But before we do so, maybe you guys can introduce yourselves to our audience and then we'll start talking about the show. Sarah? Yeah, so I am an associate professor of history in central Pennsylvania, and I have a book on the women Air Force service pilots of World War II and the role that they played during the war and then fighting for veteran status after. And that's kind of me in a nutshell. I love World War II, military, aviation, all the things. You got to say the name of your book, Sarah. Oh, yeah. My book's Earning Their Wings. It's <laughs> with the OMC Press. Luke, if you'll introduce yourself and your book to us, that would be helpful too. Yeah. Uh, my name is Luke Truxell. Uh, I'm currently an adjunct at Cumberland University uh, up in Lebanon, Tennessee, uh, which is also where uh, Cordell Hole went to school. Uh, so it really puts perspective on how even at a small school, you could, you know, be teaching the next, you know, secretary of the state and not know it, you know, puts teaching the perspective, I guess. But, uh, the, uh, my book is uh, Uniting Against the Reich uh, with uh, University of Kentucky, uh, University Press of Kentucky. Uh, I know uh, I should probably answer the next question, which is, uh, was it Coke or Pop? Uh, and uh, it's actually soda. Uh, I did that because uh, I grew up saying Coke. Uh, I married uh, my wife, who's from uh, New Jersey. And uh, for the longest time, I'd say I need a Coke. I was referring to a Diet Dr. Pepper. She'd get me a Diet Coke or an actual Coke. And so I switched to soda because I never used pop, but soda kind of conveyed what I wanted. We're going to forgive your, your, your discretions here because it's everything. It's a Coca-Cola here, here at HATM, but that's, that's fine and good. Um, all right. I want to talk to our audience here just real quick to talk about what we're going to do here with this podcast. It's going to be a little bit differently. Um, we're going to get our first introductions to this uh, to this series. So if you haven't had a chance to listen in or to watch Masters of the Air just yet, uh, this first little bit we're going to talk about will be a spoiler-free, just general impressions of the show. Maybe kind of set the stage for what you're going to see. So if you're going in to watch this series for the very first time, 
you know kind of where we are in 1943, which is when we first meet this uh, this this uh, this group of uh, pilots and um, support uh, support staff. Uh, and then we'll jump into a little bit later on, and we'll announce this. Uh, really, kind of do a, a spoiler filled recap, so you can either pause it or come back or later, or just listen to the dulcet tones of Jason, Sarah, and Luke as we talk about all things World War II. So that said, let's jump into this. Sarah, Luke, we all watched this over the weekend. We were all texting back and forth. There was much popcorn consumed over the weekend over the, watching these shows. We, we're going to talk about the first two episodes that Apple made available to us on Friday. What were your first general thoughts, without spoiling the show, what are, you, what are your first general thoughts of, uh, of the show itself? Luke, you want to go first? Okay. Uh, I, I guess you could say I got, went into this with a lot of cautious optimism and it was more i know it's going to sound bad but it, it was more relief for, considering how hyped the show was uh considering that you know we've been waiting on this for so long and we've had a lot of movies that have been hyped like well, tv series and movies that have been hyped like this especially air power ones and what tends to happen is they either romanticize the air war like top gun uh, which romanticizes air-to-air combat which it should not be uh or um it really just doesn't live up to expectations for a number of reasons. I was pleasantly surprised for the most part, it lived up to the expectations. And in, in many ways, it exceeded my expectations for a any kind of media coverage uh, or fictional portrayal of the air war. And it treated it with the seriousness that it deserved. Yeah, I loved your recap because I also approached it with cautious optimism, as I do with most things, especially when you study something closely, you're like prepared to be let down, but are ready for whatever you're about to experience. Um, there, like, yeah, we, I won't get into spoilers yet, but there are things that like I would have done slightly differently, but overall I feel the same as Luke. So that was exciting to experience to not be let down basically. And All I also right. really like how they like band of brothers in the Pacific, how they show the experience of what it's like to be in this crew. Cause that's what I was most hoping to get out of it. Yeah, I think that this, Sarah, you you open up the perfect segue here. Uh, I felt very much the same way as you guys. I am obviously not the specialist here, and I've actually kind of tried to keep myself dumb when it comes to this. So I haven't read ahead. I don't know what happens to these people, uh, so I can kind of be like the audience and like the YouTube scholars here. But let's go ahead and talk about this. And I know that this is going to probably be a recurring theme throughout the next several weeks, and certainly at the end when we come back to talk about the the, the series as a whole, but the comparisons between this show and band of brothers in the Pacific are obviously going to, going to be part of the experience of this show. What were your first thoughts? Uh, as you watch it, were you hoping it was going to be similar? Were you looking for differences? Were you like, Oh wait, the music is different. Or what were your thoughts just basically compare in comparing this to maybe it's, it's older brothers, if you will, of, of this series. I guess I'll go first again. Uh, you know, I actually didn't go into this actually thinking to compare it to the Pacific or Band of Brothers. But if I was to compare it between which one it's more similar to and which direction it's going, is it's going to be more similar to uh, Band of Brothers than the Pacific. You're going to be focusing – one of the problems with Pacific and why I think it it's not as popular is because you lose the unit cohesion story. Uh, the narrative uh, dissects in a lot of ways because you're talking about several different individuals in the Pacific. I still love the Pacific. I want to make that very clear. I think it's 
really good. It talks about the horrors of war. It talks about war crimes. It talks about just the ugliness of the war and PTSD and what happens after, which I thought was really good. But um, in terms of storytelling, it makes it more difficult because you're constantly jumping plots to, you know, different, you know, you have three or four different guys you're following in different units. What's nice about what they're doing with the 100th Bomb Group with Masters of the Air and also what they're doing with what they did with Band of Brothers is by following one unit, the narrative is a little bit more easier to write and keep consistent. And you can follow one story rather than multiple stories. So uh, I wasn't going in looking for that comparison, but uh, ultimately uh, it did stick out to me. Yeah, I felt the same about... Um, what you're saying about the Pacific versus Band of Brothers and how this is will be similar for people with just focusing on one unit. So I am excited to see how that unfolds and how people identify with the different like individuals with these stories and how that humanizes different things for them. And I don't think I have anything else to add really like to what Luke said. There's one thing I, I do want to kind of, I guess, put out a cautious warning. Uh, I don't know if anybody ever read Stephen Ambrose's um, uh, Band of Brothers book, but the television series uh, created what Ambrose was not going for in his book. His book, Band of Brothers, was actually trying to tell the story of what it was like for one infantry company from D-Day to the end of the war. What ended up happening, one of the side effects of the television series is a lot of people thought that Easy Company was like the best company in the 101st Airborne. The 101st Airborne is the best division in the U.S. Army. That's not necessarily true. It was trying to show what the typical experiences that you would get. And uh, that's something I am concerned about. Uh, like with we saw with Easy Company and Band of Brothers, what it seems like uh, the creators here are doing is they're trying to use the 100th Bomb Group as a vehicle to tell the larger story of the 8th Air Force, but doing it in a more focused way. But the danger is, is that some people might come away thinking that the 100th Bomb Group is somehow more superior than other bomb groups, when in fact that's not the case. They're just trying to tell what it was like for a lot of airmen, but using one vehicle to do that. Yeah, great disclaimer. Right. Yeah, that, that's good. I do I do feel like we also need a disclaimer. The 101st uh, Airborne Division is uh, stationed where? Uh, I think they're at Fort Campbell now, aren't they? Fort Campbell, what state is that? Kentucky. Oh, that's right. That does, in fact, make them the best ever. Uh, just going to make, make sure that everyone understands that. Uh, sure. All things from Kentucky are best ever. Right into um, that. You, you, you did a little bit. Sarah, Sarah's Missourian uh, border state is uh, shi- shining through right now. Um, all right, sure. let's go ahead and get into the history here because we're kind of one of the cool things about this show is that we're kind of launched into the world. We don't get a we don't get a backstory, if you will, and I kind of like that about the, about this. We don't we don't get an origin story of the hundredth, right? We don't get an origin story of World War II. It is like, hey, it is nineteen forty three, and we're at war, right? So, for those people who are coming into this, where is the United States? Just briefly. Relative to the war, like where are we in 1943? Where, where, where's the Army Air? Let's talk a little bit about this Air Forces, Air Services. What are there? We don't even have an Air Force at this point in time. We were just talking a little bit about the lingo. Where are we in 1943? Luke's making a face. So Sarah, jump in. I know. I was like, there's so many things to say. It's such a big question that I will start by just giving like a very big umbrella picture that I tell my students to get them into this. And then Luke can like fill in things as he like decides. But um, I normally talk to my students about like how we're behind 
um, technologically, right? And thinking about even things like taking off of aircraft carriers and distance and, you know, revenge with Japan and the Pacific and all these other things that are going on. And then I talk about how we're, you know, still very much figuring out the identity of, because this is going to eventually be the Air Force, like a separate branch of the military. But right now it's under the umbrella of the Army. So we're trying to figure out that identity and we now understand the importance of aviation and how it will be central um, in a lot of cases. And so that means, you know, that's going to have ramifications in a lot of ways. And another big thing I try to tell them is about like, when you think about um, like, because we're looking at a bombing group, when you think about bombers, um, lots of people talk about what happens like later in the war where you have pursuit aircraft that protect the bombers, but that doesn't happen like at the beginning. And so just trying to see that we're jumping into a moment when we're still figuring out a lot of things like we do with, you know, North Africa, et cetera, in the war effort. So those are the very big picture things I tell students who know nothing or little about it. And then Luke, would you like to take over? Yeah. Um, Yeah. Sarah probably knows the reason why I was taking a deep breath there trying to collect my thoughts because um, uh, there's a lot happening uh, in um, uh, the air war uh, over Europe. So we'll just say collectively Europe, but really what we're talking about is there are two theaters of operation that are taking place uh, at this time. Uh, There's the Mediterranean theater of operations, which is actually the priority. They're still fighting uh, they're finishing up the, fu- they just finished up the fighting in North, North Africa. They're starting to move into Sicily with Operation Husky and then into Italy. That is the priority. Um, eventually we're going to do Operation Overlord, but that's in 1944. The reason I say that, and that matters, is the air war begins for the Americans. The strategic bombing campaign over Europe in the 8th Air Force begins, interestingly enough, on August 17th of 1942 uh, with the 97th Bomb Group. Now, in 42, what happens is as the 8th Air Force is getting built up, uh, the invasion of North Africa is about to take place. And as a result of that, uh, a good chunk of the 8th Air Force is cannibalized to make the 12th Air Force, which will be partaking in the fighting in North Africa. There's also another Air Force known as the 9th Air Force, which is also fighting in North Africa but on the northeastern side uh, out of Egypt. And so you have three air forces operating uh, in uh, the European theater, uh, which is basically France, Germany, uh, north of the Alps, uh, that area, which is more like northern and northwestern Europe. And then you have the Mediterranean theater of operations, which is basically everything around the Mediterranean Sea and can be as far east as uh, Romania uh, and the Eastern Front. And so you have these three air forces operating, and here's the problem that's taking place is there's a battle for resources, battle for pilots, air crews, and also going into the long-range escort fighter problem. There is a fighter that does have some pretty pretty nice distance, um, but that has been designated for the North African uh, fighting in North Africa and the fighting in the Med. And so one of the reasons why the 8th Air Force has P-47s is that the P-38s were taken to a different theater. Um, and so... They don't have enough bombers. They don't have enough air crews. They just don't have enough. And it's only 1943. You know, one of the things to remember about 1943 is that this is a year of learning for the Americans and the bombing operations. What works, what doesn't work. Uh, They still believe in the idea of the self-defending bomber, that the bomber will always get through. Um, And uh, also another problem that, uh, two more problems, I guess you could say, that are 
coming up is that one, they've just finished the big doctrine debate over daylight and night bombing at Casablanca in January of 43. But leading up to this, they've just finalized uh, Operation Point Blank, which is the operational plan to implement the combined bomber offensive, that big bomber offensive against Germany and its allies and targeting German industry. That actually just went into effect right before this bomb group arrives in the theater. Uh, And so this group is arriving right as the 8th Air Force is really ramping up operations and increasing aircraft. And one final thing I'll also note that we should consider is during the spring and early summer, the Luftwaffe has transferred the vast majority of its fighter units from the Eastern Front to the defense of the Reich and Germany itself. So they're not just going to be going against inexperienced German fighters. They're going against highly experienced fighters, and they're not going to be fighting the same air war that many of the 8th Air Force pilots and air crews fought in 42. They're going to be fighting a lot more fighters than what they saw early on, and they're going to be going deeper into Germany. Sorry, I, that's why that's the best I can condense all that. Look, this sounds awful. I don't want to be in a war. This does, What's this, happening? Yeah, all right. I... We, I want to jump in one last thing before we start recapping the show. Uh, The show is kind of famously, you've really kind of got two leads in Austin Butler and Callum Turner, and then also Barry Keoghan, who people are probably familiar with some of his work as well. Uh, All three of the guys are are kind of our three leads, if you will. But there's a fourth lead on this uh, this show, and it is the B-17 Flying Fortress. Can we talk a little bit about what this plane is? Versus, say, some of the other planes, maybe because I get confused between a B-17 and a B-29 and a B-52. And I just like to dance. Uh, but what are the what are the differences here? Why? What is the B-17 and why is it important for us for our story here? I'll go with it. I guess so. Do you want me to go first? Yeah, you can absolutely. Go. OK, uh, the B-17 is a four inch uh, heavy bomber that uh, was built in the 1930s designed to penetrate air defenses and basically kind of go in, defend itself uh, and uh, strike industrial targets uh, and then kind of move out. The idea is that this plane will have enough guns defending itself uh, that it would uh, be able to basically achieve air superiority by attriting enemy fighters while at the same time attacking production at the same time. So, they had this idea, uh, the phrase that constantly comes up is the bomber will always get through. Um, now, the B-17 doesn't work on its own. The idea is that you have a packed formation of all of these and the combined defensive firepower of the 50 caliber machine guns and all the other guns on the aircraft will basically make it almost impossible for uh, enemy fighters to get through and uh, successfully attrit uh, the aircraft. Uh, I talked about this with you a little bit earlier, you know, before we went on show, but um, one of the things the Americans did not anticipate was head-on passes, which we saw, uh, I mean, a little bit of a spoiler, you'll see them in the series because, well, that's what the Germans do, but um, uh, they didn't anticipate initially head-on passes uh, being effective. Uh, A lot of reasons why, uh, one of the biggest was is that they really didn't think anybody would be bold enough to really risk the closing speed that we're talking about. So you're not just going hundreds of miles an hour. You got to also calculate you're going hundred miles an hour at a plane that's coming at you at the same speed. So a lot of uh, B-17 Fs uh, that first arrive uh, do not have any kind of defensive capabilities in the front. Something the Germans also noticed, if you attack the front, you can kill the pilot and the co-pilot 
and you can basically cripple the bombers really quickly that way. So head-on passes is something the Germans started adopting. Uh, and as a result, they modified the F and put, and you, the ones you'll see in the TV series are Fs initially, uh, where they basically put, they modified the F to put uh, two machine guns inside where the uh, uh, bombardier is. Uh, but uh, later on, they'll introduce uh, later in 1943, uh, the B-17E, uh, uh, which has a chin turret, which was much more effective. Uh, compared, sorry, I need to compare it to the other aircraft now because I just went B-17 crazy. Uh, but uh, the B-17, uh, in comparison, uh, doesn't have the range that a B-24 has. Both are four-engine heavy bombers. Both have that same concept. But the B-24 uh, has a heavier payload and has a longer range and a faster speed than the B-17. The key difference, though, and why a lot of B-17 pilots preferred the B-17 over the B-24, is the B-24, and I heard Sarah talk about this on uh, when she was on uh, with you over the, uh, talking about the Memphis Bell film, is that the B-24 is not very stable once it's hit, particularly around the engines. And so it doesn't take much to knock a B-24 out of the air. So in terms of um, maneuverability, in terms of flyability, uh, in terms of um, just survivability, uh, the B-17 was better. But in terms of basically faster speed, fat, more range, heavier payload, uh, the uh, the uh, B-24 was better. Uh, sorry, the B-17 was better. It, I think we it looks lost. like we lost Jason, but we are still recording. So, yeah. I mean, I was, yeah, I was just going to like emphasize what you said about pilots preferring the B-17 for that reason, for their um, ability to come back from things like B like damage to the B-24s, like hydraulic system and things like that. So, um, yeah, I don't have, I don't know what direction to go with this since he like I, dropped off or if I mean, he'll want to. We could kind of, we could kind of wing it since it's still recording. Uh, yeah, but, sure. uh, yeah, but, uh, we were just, uh, finishing up the discussion about the B-17 and pilot's preference for it. Just so you know. No, that's fantastic. The The beautiful part of doing this uh, doing this podcast is that sometimes due to the awesome internet capabilities here in Pueblo, Colorado, the internet kind of goes back and forth as I'm, as I'm trying to record these pods. So no, that's that's perfectly fine. <laughs> don't don't worry. Um, all right. I want to jump in and start recapping this. And we're just going to jump into spoilers now. So if people are coming, kind of coming into this series now. Uh, this is where we're going to go ahead and start spoiling the show and talk about specifically what we saw on screen. Uh, and we start the show not really so much in Europe, but in ne Nebraska. So what's going on? Is this where bomber crews trained? Sarah, I know that you talked a lot about these uh, women pilots uh, in your book. What's going on? Where are these bombers training for these missions overseas? That's actually why I was hoping a little bit that they would show some aspect of training because then we could bring in the WASP, the Women Air Force Service Pilots, just because they also trained on the B-17, the ones that were given that assignment or the ones that ferried aircraft across the country. Um, but like one of the places where they were training was um, in out in Las Vegas, uh, Army Airfield. And so did I say that right? Yeah, I think Las Vegas, right, Luke? You made a face. Uh, it made me doubt uh, myself uh, for a second. Yeah, uh, I I have a Wendover Field in Utah. Is that how? Maybe. I know there was a wasp who was, I need to find my like notes. I know, somewhere, the, but well, I know she was stationed in Las Vegas for it, but you go. Well, 
Well, I know the hundredth had this. This is kind of the weird thing about the hundredth is they had some issues <laughs> okay. with training, and so they bounced around a bit. And they, uh, the, the only thing I know about Windover is that they had to be sent to for remedial training because their training was so bad. So maybe they started out near Vegas. Okay. Uh, yeah, I was going to say. Again, yeah. Go ahead. Just, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was going to say maybe I, since I didn't look at the hundredth as closely as the wasp, maybe it's like there's the possibility that the hundredth didn't train in Las Vegas. Is that possible? It's possible, but also there's. Uh, if you ever get a chance to read Harry Crosby's memoirs, um, and I've also looked at some other stuff, but um, this is where we get a little bit spoilery. But uh, they were they had some issues with discipline. Uh, which the show kind of shows, but I think is really downplaying uh, because uh, when they were, they had to be sent for remedial training. The first group commander was fired in training because they were so just crazy, I guess. Uh, I Just constant discipline problems. Uh, Egan was demoted before he they even got overseas, not in the film. It has to get demoted, you know, early on uh, while they're overseas. He actually got demoted uh, during training uh, to a squadron commander because of, everything that was going on. Um, the reason I kind of think your story's true, and I don't know if they train there, but one of the problems that happened with the hundredth is that when they were doing their flight kind of over to the East coast before they left to go through the Greenland route is that a lot of these guys flew wherever they wanted to, with regards to airfields, instead of staying in formation, like some flew to Vegas. I've heard of that story. I think, I think it's Vegas where where a couple of them flew, but also I know one, one sticks out to me because it's close to where I live. One pilot decided he wanted to see his wife. So he flew to Smyrna, uh, Tennessee, in the airfield at Smyrna, Tennessee, stopped by and hung out with his wife before flying to the East Coast. And so they just kind of all went wherever. Uh, that's at least, If I recall, it's what Crosby describes is that basically they just kind of – so they had discipline problems really even before they got over to England. And again, I only know about Windover is because that stuck out to me because uh, it's not in the movie or it's not in the TV series. It stuck out to me because I knew of another group that was at Windover, and I saw that. I was like, oh, same field. And then I realized, yeah. oh, it's, they had to actually be sent for remedial training. So um, they were in Nebraska, but I know they bounced around a lot because of their training issues. I did just look it up, and the WASP did train with male pilots at Nellis Air Force Base in Las Vegas, okay. Nevada. So definitely there were pilots, tra- like male and women, like pilots that were trained at Las Vegas. So it might not have been the 100th bombing group, because I, we would need to look that up, like Luke's saying. Yeah. But I know that the Wasp did with other men, because that's how one of the Wasp, um, she and her husband met, was they were both stationed there for B-17 training. And he yeah. was in the 100th um, bomb group, but isn't featured in the show so far. I don't know if he'll be brought in. Um, and, I mean, but- I mean, and it could be one of those cases where he flew to Vegas just to go see his girlfriend, just kind of like how Crosby describes in his memoirs as they're flying all over. Because again, from what I understand, that they did not follow the standard procedures, and that, that that's how they got into a lot of trouble. Is so that they were known as a bad, a poorly disciplined group even before they arrived in England. Well, that actually kind of leads to this idea here because we talk about this poor discipline. We see these guys on screen; they look very young, but I have a I have a sense that they're even younger than what we're seeing on screen. Can we talk about the average age of these bomber crews and exactly? I get on a plane with United or Delta. The only thing I care about is seeing gray hair on the back of the pilot. I want the dude who has seen the shit, you know? I want the guy who's flown through the, you know, through the Bermuda Triangle and back. These are not those guys. These are very young dudes who are clearly (laughs) having a good time, uh, as as we see with Egan. How old are these guys? 
So uh, Sarah, Luke can't, yeah, you can go, Luke. No, I was going to say, Sarah, you go on that one. Yeah, so I was going to say, um, just because some people might want to know, like the average age of the man who served in World War II, this is outside of pilots and air crews, is 26, just for perspective, because that's going to change in later U.S. wars, um, just as a number. Um, but I was going to say that there's going to be, as people will notice when they watch the show, the difference in rank, right? Um, there's a difference in rank based on um, your like type of service, right? Like with regards to being a pilot, et cetera. But also the fact that there are people who are going to be serving in these air crews who are noticeably younger because there's um, less training. If you're like drafted and non-commissioned, you know, like you're, you're there um, in the air crew, but you don't need to be 26 years old or whatever. Right. Like that doesn't mean that everybody's 26, but I'm just trying to say that like, if that's, the average age, it gives you the sense that there are a significant number of people who are younger than that as well. And I loved that they sh- talked about how, you know, for a lot of the men who are serving, um, they have never like left their homes, right? So they haven't been traveling. Like commercial aviation is is still just picking up. It's still becoming uh, like field, right? So people aren't just like flying everywhere. Not everybody has the money for that. We've been in the Great Depression. And so lots of people, this is their first experience like with an airplane, much less like being overseas. And so thinking about what that, the implications of what that means for you when you are green, like when you're new um, and like service and the kind of mistakes that you see happen, that's a result of not just, and we can talk about air sickness in a little bit, but like mistakes happen also because of things like that, right? Because you're adjusting to so many different things at once. And yes, you do have training, but sometimes that training is rushed, et cetera. All right. Well, th- th- that kind of leads into the, to the next question I've got here, which is also just realizing that Cross, our navigator, is the guy who wrote these memoirs, is it not? Yes. I just just I watched the show two days ago and it never even hit on me. I was like, oh, that's that's why. Okay, this makes sense. Well, this is perfect because <laughs> he is not the best navigator when we first intru- when we are first introduced to him as a young man. Uh, his planes get lost. Does this happen often? Where planes just kind of don't find their way to the right spot during World War II? These these are very young crews. These are they're being trained as fast as they possibly can. One of the things we're seeing early on is. These, this plane is not over England; it's over France, and then you know they're flying into flak all of a sudden. What is going on here? Do these planes get lost often? Uh, I guess I'll go. Uh, yes, <laughs> uh, oh, they do. Well, again, uh, if you watch closely, uh, what Crosby's doing is he's doing you know calculations. He's checking, you know, looking at the sky to see where they're at, looking for ground markers. Um, he's looking for all kinds of different indications to see where he's at and he's doing math and he, you know, in addition, and he's doing it by hand with a pencil while over a map. So, uh, getting lost, yes, does happen quite frequently. And especially when you're flying over Europe where there tends to be a lot of cloud cover. And some of these guys, their training was in the Southwestern part of the United States where, you know, there's just not as much cloud cover. So, uh, that's a bit of a problem. Yeah, I was going to emphasize like limited visibility as well, but also like they they showed you in the like first two episodes, right? When you're 
mask is off, you're, you're, you know, because you're getting, he's getting sick, like, right. Um, you also are then vulnerable to what happens to your brain at high altitudes without your oxygen. And I think it's good at showing, you know, like Luke said, you're sitting here trying to like calculate and do math and all of these things, but yet like when they were testing, you know, like oxygen mask and what different altitudes would do to your body, they would put, you know, men and women in these like chair little chambers, right. To test like altitude. And they would, when they went in, they would be tested on doing basic math and, and like some other things in there. And then they would come out and these air force officials would be like, okay, like how, how did it go? Like when you're in there and everybody who went into this chamber and came out of it, who wasn't wearing a mask, right? Cause they're testing the effective altitude was like, Oh, I did great. You know? And then they show them what they actually did while they were in the chamber. And it's complete nonsense, right? They couldn't do basic math and, and you know, like just to, to show like the impact that it has. And so that's why they're constantly like yelling at each other to keep it on because it's going to like affect you, even though you don't think it's affecting you. If that makes sense. I don't know if the story about Crosby getting air sickness is true. I didn't see that in his memoirs when I took a quick look through after the episode because I just was curious. Uh, but um, the reason why anybody who was, if they got sick, they would pull the mask off. You don't pull it off a long time, but you can't throw up in your mask because at that altitude, if it freezes, you got a bigger problem. Yeah. Yeah, you're not exactly getting any that. oxygen if everything's if everything's frozen over. And oh god, that's that's just yeah. this show is the more you watch it, and this is we only watched the first two episodes. I kept thinking this is going to be a real visceral experience, it's especially getting into that second episode where they really get start taking flack and getting getting into those first head-on uh, attacks with the uh, with the Germans. This is. This is a very gruesome show, and and likewise, as was you know, Band of Brothers and the Pacific, right? Um, there's no put, there's no doubt that we're going to get that. Um, That's just what I talk about it, though, right? Because you get get yeah. the experience of it, and you're like, I would not have wanted to do that because before, you know, when people just learn about like what bombing crews did or thinking about like you know surviving so many missions, people like sometimes glamorize it in their minds, or at the very least, sort of gloss over what it was actually like in the lived experience, right? Like what your body experiences at altitudes and what your body experiences with the cold and just all of that, like that happens. Yeah. And these are not pressurized planes that are exposed to the yeah. elements. And um, luckily in 43, they developed some heating suits, but uh, some of the earlier missions, they didn't even have that. So they had to basically, it was just bundle up. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that the, the high altitude is a very much, you're, you're fighting the elements and the enemy at the same time. Yeah, I mean, and they show very real example of that uh, when one of the guys puts his hand on the uh, was it on the on the gun itself, and his hand the skin just freezes off. You know, you're Luke. You had texted me. You're negative thirty, negative fifty inside these things. It's 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 cold, right? It's it's cold, right. cold. Um, I want to talk about life on the ground for a second. So much of this, as the other series, is based upon relationships between the men. Um, specifically Buck and Bucky, which isn't confusing at all. Uh, but what's that like? Is, is that well-documented as far as these relationships between bomber crews? Are they similar to, say, things like we've seen in films like Fury and other things where these where these crews are tight-knit? Or is, is it a camaraderie? What is this relationship like between these young men? I was going to say it, it varies a lot. So there's historians that look at, air crews in, you know, different countries, like from different countries, not just the U S during world war two. And who look at just like 
any other time that you're talking about like unit cohesion, you know, or being in the same sub or whatever, that you have varied experience based on like who's in the plane with you, which, you know, they may or may not go into more of that like later, right? Um, In terms of you're taking all these different personalities. They did emphasize to us, you know, that people are from all over the country, you know, so they have different backgrounds and cultures from where they came from and they're all interacting with each other. And then it's, they're in like a high stakes situation where they have to rely on each other, which can cause them to bond, but also can cause them because they're also experiencing like trauma and the results of their own like personalities meshing together. Um, that can result in conflict or in, you know, arguments, et cetera, that happens or, or blaming, you know, or covering for each other at the same time too. Right. It can go in like any direction. Yeah, it can, it, it, based on the stresses of combat and what's going on, it's either going to tighten that bond to a level that's really ironclad or it's going to break that bond. And some of that's on the culture of, who's in charge trying to build that culture, not just in terms of the commander of the group or the commander of the squadron, but also the commander of the plane, but also something to real remember. Uh, we, we haven't really gotten a good taste of it yet, but it, a lot of these guys are going to die and you're going to have crews that are going to be kind of, you know, we got a little taste of it with Crosby being put on a new crew, uh, but that was for sickness, uh, someone getting sick. Uh, but, um, uh, You'll have guy. You're gonna have to have replacements, and sometimes these replacements don't just come from you know a replacement depot or some, from the states. They come from another crew where a different culture is there, a different pilot, different way you operate and run things. And so, again, um, it, Sarah said it best. You know, you, you can you can get all kinds of different things when you study this. What about relationships? We see this in the, in the show between, say, American crews. British crews, Irish crews, they're all kind of there in the bar. There's, I've read some critique. People are like, well, they're not smoking enough. And therefore, I don't like why this shows. Like, okay, that's fine. Uh, but what are the relationships? Are Americans being greeted warmly? Or are we working well with our with our allied fa- with our allies in arms? Did you Sarah's want to go on, or do you want me to? No, I'm trying to. I'm trying to I, it's one of those questions where it's kind of like the one um, – uh, he asked about where we were at in 1943. He, I'm trying to find the right. Yeah, there's so much to say. Yeah, my uh, my favorite like you know line that's thrown around all the time is that uh, for you know people in the UK, but Britain especially when troops are coming through there, you know, to go to various um, theaters or operations, especially like when we get to 44, they talk about Americans being like overfed, oversexed, and over here is like the phrase that's thrown around. But essentially, that you know. <laughs> The British have been at war, right, for, you know, like so much longer than us. And we're just like jumping in here um, and they see us as like we don't have the same intensity of rationing right now. We have the availability of resources, even things like rubber. I remember one time I heard um, this scholar talk about how like their the rubber shortages were so intense in Britain that they didn't even have rubber for gloves for midwives to do births for women like each midwife got one pair of rubber gloves for the year because it it got rubber shortages got so bad and so even think about things like condoms right the availability that americans have for all these different things they you know could that can cause resentment and also 
resentment over the fact that they've experienced so much loss and their country has been bombed like extensively. And yet here Americans come in fresh, you know, same thing with Australia. Like if you think about the Pacific, they do a good job showing like what some, not every, again, it's not everyone, right. But what some Australians think about Americans coming in and and their perspectives in those same ways. So, and also the sheer number of Americans who are eventually going to overwhelm them, right. It's going to be, just think about, a lot of people from another country, your your allies, but they're traipsing through your country, right? They're using resources. They're, that's where the over there part of the phrase comes, right? It's like they're here and yeah, making our lives inconvenient in certain ways. And again, some of this I think also applies to where you're at in the war for the British. Uh, and, and, and again, uh, one of the things I liked about them showing the children is the children have a very different experience because a lot of the ground crew stay there for the entirety of the war. And so they'll be there for years. Uh, and so these kids build really tight relationships with these guys that are, and they let them, their pictures of them going around on the bases. Um, and so uh, it is a bit of a mixed bag. I would say Sarah really nails it on the head with the lack of experience is that the Americans are seen constantly as not having enough experience. And I think that was what they were trying to portray in the pub scene. Maybe could have done it a little bit better. Maybe could have executed it better. Maybe could have, changed up the dialogue to be more show more empathy than the way they portrayed it but overall what they're trying to indicate is that the there is a element of the british society that are very glad and very grateful and yes you're here there's another side that is also grateful that they're helping but also just frustrated by how the americans kind of come in here and just don't understand it seems like what they're getting into and the british kind of are like you should listen to us you know and that plays up not just at the, you know, culturally level with like the guys on the ground um, and with the interactions with the public, but even at the highest levels, uh, the British and the Americans are butting heads. And a lot of it is the British it, it have this experience and they are making decisions based on the experience and are trying to help the Americans out. And in some cases, the Americans are like, we're going to do it our own way. And some of that, I will say the Americans doing it their own way is works for them. And so some of this is just like, this works for us, but not for you. But in other cases is the British are actually trying to say, you should not do this, you know, because Marshall's initial plan when the Americans got in the war was to invade France as early as possible. And the British had to basically like tap that down, tap the brakes on that. So again, a lot of the, I, I would say a lot of the friction is what Sarah said. It's the, it's this lack of experience and not being in the war as long, uh, I'd say that's the probably the chief thing causing that friction. I want to ask you guys about air combat. We start to see this. We we get in this first episode. We get all the way up to that. We're like, all right, we get our first bombing run. Let's let's bomb. Oh, fucking clouds! Clouds are ruining our bombs. I was. I, we got done with the first episode. And I was like, we didn't drop. We, there's no bomb. We're just going to drop the bombs in the ocean. Um, and I have all these questions. And then, of course, in the second episode, we finally do see that very first raid on the uh, submarine pens, the U-boat pens. Um, so I've got a, some questions for you guys as far as what we actually saw on screen in bomber combat. Of course, as Sarah, you were saying earlier, we don't have the fighter escort uh, in 1943. I know that that's probably coming. They make allusions to that. I know we see the Tuskegee Airmen uh, in the commercials for this, and I'm getting all excited, yes. right? Uh, so I'm excited to, to, to get there once we do. First question. How do these planes not run into each other all the time when they are that compact? And I always wondered, how do you have planes dropping bombs 
and planes on top of stacked on top of each other and them not get blown up by the other bomb. This this is so confusing. Luke, you you've got you've got that face again. Go for it. Uh they did. Uh they did. There's it, it is not uncommon to have mid-air collisions in forming up. It happened. Uh it's not uncommon for planes to be packed so much with fuel and ammo and bombs that the pilot didn't get off the ground in time and crashed. Uh, it's not uncommon for people not to be flying formation well enough to where you'll see a video. There's a video out there, if you look it up, of a uh, B-24 being hit by his own bombers. Uh, basically, the bombs come down through the formation, and the formation wasn't being flown correctly. I don't know who was off, but one bomb goes right through the, uh, a B-24 engine. And so this stuff did happen. Um, and uh, some of the mid-air collisions are caused by the cloud cover. Uh, the confusion forming up. In fact, they're actually changing in this period of 1943. They're changing how they form up uh, during this period. Uh, so that's also causing some confusion. Uh, this is before radar. You know, Well, there is radar, but this is before like the modern air traffic control system that we have and the advanced radar that we have. You know, uh, So again, you have, a, you have hundreds of these planes packed into the air coming up. And one of the things that they use to help form up is you saw the flares. Uh, but if you look at some pictures in the National Archives, you'll see that there are also these special planes that are designed to help everybody form up. And they're like the most ridiculous camouflage you'll see. You'll see like some with polka dots. You'll see the, they're, they're meant to be spotted. So everybody can line up on them. And then that plane drops out of formation and everybody moves on. But uh, this stuff did happen. This is, again, uh, a lot of this is new. Uh, yes, we saw air power in the First World War, but not on this scale and not with this kind of technology. And so these accidents are happening. And uh, I should also point out friendly fires happening. It's not uncommon for another B-17 to be hitting another B-17 when those fighters fly through. Uh, I kind of thought I saw that uh, in the first episode. It looked like it because you see a B fighter fly through the formation. You see the waste gunner just tracking him right through. And there's another B-17 right across from him. And you know, so you'll see some combat reports where a B-17 has actually got battle damage from another B-17. Yeah, it's like the over... I don't have anything to add to that, really. It's just like the one of the overlooked aspects of war, right, that shows just how messy and complicated everything is. And that as you're figuring things out, there are going to be casualties because of mistakes and because of all these factors that Luke just mentioned, right? One of the things I saw designed to combat these mistakes is the superstitious nature of the uh, crew. Can we talk a little bit about this? This is opening up a world to me in which I see we see the snow globe. We see references to other lucky things. Are pilots and crews by nature a superstitious lot? Yes. Not every single person, but I, you know, if I had a dollar for every time I read about a pilot that did, that did a specific set of things, kind of like the throwing the salt scene, right? Like mm -hmm. they did a specific set of things prior to getting in their plane, right? Or that always had to have that one item with them. I mean, it, it occurs for men in combat on the ground as well, or even not in combat, but men on the ground serving um, because there's just this level of like, what do I, it, you know, can I say the same, you know, ritual like every day, like some, there's one pilot that read like a poem every time before he flew. So it's like doing these little things that 
tries to help you with the element of the fact that you can't control. There's only so much you can control, right? When you're going into on these like missions, but just being in combat in general. And so it helps people, I think, feel a little bit like they have a little bit of control that they can have, you know, in that specific way. Um, Or just thinking about like, you know, doing the sign of the cross, like that, you know, before you get in or, you know, talking to the chaplain who made himself available kind of thing. Like all those things can be like supports for you to feel like there's something you can do that's bigger than you that will help protect you in some way, hopefully. Right. Yeah. And I think, and again, I, this is the thing I've been kind of debating and, and Sarah might be able to help me out with this. Cause this is something I'm just, I've been thinking about for a while since the, I saw the episode is with the good luck charm thing is that, is it, is it happening more in the army air forces or is this just a perception that it's happening more? And I'm wondering if it is happening more, the thing that I'm coming around to is if these, this need for good luck charms is more, shall we say in the army air forces and those guys that go up, if we're seeing more of it there than we are seeing in other ground operations and other units that fight on the ground, is this because that they have time to think about it after a mission, they come back, they sleep, they have time. Sometimes they have days. Sometimes they have a week to think between a mission. And you don't, the one, I guess, they're constantly on and off, on and off. And they have time to think every time in between a mission. And then they have to think about their odds every time they go up. And so th- is that why we, is, and again, I, I don't know, this is something I haven't studied, but I don't know if Sarah could shed a lot on it. Is, is there more happening with, you know, airmen? because they have that time to think or is that just some perception that we have or I don't know. I like this line of thinking because I don't know that I've sat and thought a lot about why in particular, because it does very much to me feel like it's more like the army air forces or the service and pilots in particular, because there's just so many stories. Whereas for other forces, it feels like there's fewer stories. Like I'm talking about when you're in the archives, that is what I'm talking about. Um, So I do wonder if it's a result of what you're saying, the fact that you do have that time to dwell and sit and think and the sort of like, I don't know, some special kind of hell that that puts you through, like torture wise, right? That you, that, that you are, instead of just being, not that anything is better than anything else, right? Or preferable, but if you think about someone in combat in the Pacific, for example, and just like the relentlessness of it until you get a break, the fact that you'll be on these missions, you'll see the visible evidence of how many men are gone, but then there are those like moments of pause that potentially could feel like torturous to you, right? Like Luke saying, that would give you that time and space to think about it. I like that a lot, Luke. Also, a one flight surgeon, uh, either I heard it in an oral history or he told it to me. I can't remember now. It's been so long ago, but, uh, mentioned that, um, his, his name was Thurman Schuler. He's the flight surgeon, of 306 bomb group. I can't remember if I was listening to his oral history while I was working or if I was actually like there, there talking to him at a dinner. Uh, but, uh, he mentioned that, you know, mentally it was easier for a plane to go down than for a person to get shot in the plane. It's easier for the crew to accept a loss as a missing plane because maybe they bailed out and we didn't see it. Maybe something else happened. Maybe they survived. But if they came back dead, 
and they come out of that playing dead, there's a sense of finality to it that you, there is no hope. And so, again, that goes back into the thinking. Then you have time to think about it. And then you have to watch them pull all their stuff out of the barracks as it's happening and pack up their gear. All the orderlies come in, pack up the gear of the crew. In some cases, 10, 20, and then, you know, as we saw in the first episode, 30 guys, their entire lockers all packed up and gone. So. Can I ask you guys about the differences? We get into this really in the second episode where we start talking about the differences due to technological advances and, and maybe styles between the British and the Americans. The idea, uh, but in 1943, the differences between say, these nighttime uh, bombing raids versus the daytime bombing raids, the Brits kind of famously tell the Americans in this episode, like those are suicide missions. You're going to die if you bomb during the daylight. And there's this idea is that they refer to these daylight raids as more precision oriented. I get the sense that like these nighttime raids are more vengeance, just like, fuck it. Let's just kill them all kind of thing. I don't know. But like, can we talk about the differences between approaches between say the British and the Americans in 43 and nighttime and daytime bombing? You can go Luke. And okay. Is there a debate for the American? Is there a, is there a debate amongst the Americans that we should be bombing at night because we're taking too many casualties during the day? There's not really much of a debate amongst the Americans about what they want to do. They've developed this doctrine uh, in the 1930s. Uh, they're pretty committed to it. Uh, they're going to stay with daylight bombing. They're trained on daylight bombing. Now, over the course of the war, they do, uh, over time, on a case-by-case basis, start doing more and more area bombing. Their doctrine is still precision bombing, but what we see is we see in uh, Tammy Davis Biddle wrote a great book called Rhetoric and Reality in the Air War in Europe. And what you see is over time, the Americans start to drift away from that doctrine in 44 and 45, more and more to the point where they just start outright doing area bombing uh, with much more frequency. Uh, And uh, so again, the Americans don't switch. There's not much of a debate over daylight or night. There is a debate over uh, not in 43, but kind of as we get into 44, we start seeing them wonder about, you know, whether or not area bombing attacks work. Uh, and we do start seeing shifts towards more area bombing over the course of the war. But with regards to the British and the American debate, the American doctrine of daylight precision bombing is this idea that you attack specific nodes in the economy uh, uh, through precision daylight attacks because that's the best technology to launch a precision strike and to hit and destroy those factories. And you don't target just factories. You pick a they, – they did these studies, massive studies. And I've read report after report after report. Uh, in the archives over oil, electricity, and they try to figure out what is the key like system that if they bring this system down, it's going to shut the whole economy down and shut their ability down to wage war. Um, They look at what we'll see, uh, a little bit of a spoiler, what we'll see in the future episodes is they'll attack ball bearings. Uh, That doesn't work out um, for a number of reasons, Uh, but uh, they also attack oil, they attack... um, transportation targets, rail targets. Uh, So they do want to do precision bombing, you know, in terms of aiming at a target and hitting it. Now, what I think, and this is, this is probably one of my few criticisms of kind of that first, you know, episode, which is part A and part B, uh, is that um, you don't really get, you get a little bit, but you don't really get a good sense of what precision bombing is. Uh, Precision bombing is getting a successful mission is getting all your bombs within 1,000 feet of the aiming point. So you could miss the target, not destroy the target, 
and still have a successful mission in terms of accuracy. So your group could have still achieved its job, done a good job, get the A plus on the mission, and you could have not destroyed it. In fact, we have cases where factories are in fact hit, but the machines are not destroyed. So basically you have the Germans operating in open air factories with none of the machinery destroyed. So again, um, precision bombing does have, it, it's not what it is hyped to be. Um, the best way I know how to describe it is it's like taking a massive shotgun with high explosives and trying to get it in a certain area with the hope that you destroy the factory. Area bombing, I call it um, a cruel and pragmatic doctrine. The British realized that precision bombing is not possible early in the war. They tried it, they took high losses, and they couldn't hit the target anyways. Uh, They decided that to preserve their air crews and their air force, uh, they don't have the air crews or the planes. They don't have the industrial might that the United States have, and they don't have the men and the airmen that the United States have. So they have to preserve their air force if they want to keep one around for the rest of the war. So they switched to night bombing to, to reduce their losses. Uh, with the radar bombing technology that exists in World War II, you can't really hit much except maybe a city very accurately. And so the best way to bring the war to Germany to continue fighting back against Germany using strategic bombing is to attack German morale. And by German morale, I mean German citizens and killing as many German citizens as possible. So what they would do is they'd create these special firebombs that are incendiary bombs. They're not high explosives like the Americans. These are designed to explode and ignite things on fire. And when they do that, uh, the idea is that you're going to burn these cities to the ground, reduce German morale to the point where they will overthrow the government and maybe quit the war like what what they kind of thought would happen like it did in World War I. Um, uh, the problem with that is, is when you destroy a person's house, they become more dependent on that government. They become more, you know, they become more uh, intertwined with that government and need that government. And also the element of revenge, attacking citizens in war and civilians in war, attacking civilians in war, even today, that does not produce a desired effect. Punishment bombing does not work. It, there's a long history and plenty of case studies to show punishing German civilians and just punishing civilians as a whole as, a, as an air campaign has the opposite effect. It galvanizes support for the government, it galvanizes support for the military, and it leads to more people wanting to kill you. So uh, the Americans pursue precision. Uh, I will say it's more effective than what the British are doing, but the British do destroy a lot of cities and kill a lot of German civilians throughout the course of the war. And then, like, just to add to what Luke is saying, it this is like the ethical implica- implications of war, right? And what we're willing to do as a nation and the decisions that we're making regarding civilians and the use of incendiary weapons, right? Like bombing, et cetera. Um, it all, you know, leaves us with lingering questions and things to debate about what we're willing to do during times of war. And even like what Luke is saying, thinking about even on a basic level of what is and is not effective or has proven, right? Like he's saying about civilians is are questions that like historians grapple with and people in higher policy think about. And I should point out, cause I, I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm like, you know, looking at this purely from a, what works and what doesn't work, you know, area bombing is a war crime. When you cross that, you know, precision bombing, you can at least say you're trying to hit a military target. 
of some degree or military production. But the moment you switch to area bombing, there's a clear line that you have crossed. You can't, there's no gray area. What the Americans are doing is they know there's going to be civilian casualties. So there is a gray area, but you can at least say they're trying to hit military targets. Once you cross that line into area bombing, you are, it is very clear you are committing a war crime. There's no wiggle room. There is no justification for that. And so, you know, that's something that you, you have to remember once the the British, but then later on the Americans do it. They are committing war crimes once they start switching to area bombing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we know this is. I'm sorry. Go ahead, sir. Oh, it's okay. I was just going to say that's under like international human rights law too. That isn't just like yeah. Luke saying it's a war crime. Like it's an actual like. Def- yeah, yeah, you can go. Yeah, yeah. And this this is this is well established. I don't think we're going to ruin the series by saying that we know Americans are going to start doing this. We know about Dresden and most you know kind of most famously in Japan with the firebombing of Japan, where really. Japan often gets overshadowed with talk of the bomb, but it was the firebombs of Japan for those who are not familiar. Firebombing of Japan killed so many more people, uh, civilians, uh, military elsewhere, dogs, even uh, than you know than Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I mean, it, it just becomes this holy terror war. Um, I wanted to ask you about this because Apple TV was very can't canny and doing this kind of setting us up with our first two episodes we got a little something and kind of building to this first time where we actually got to deploy the bombs we get to see we get to see the bombers do bombing we see the bombers in combat specifically uh over norway can we talk a little bit about this first mission that we actually see this uh this force uh, take on as we wrap up towards the end of this uh, episode uh you want to go sarah I was like, you can, because you took like a deep oh. breath, and so I was like, I'm good with waiting. Oh, yeah. oh, no. Don't you not scoot? For those of you who can't no, see, was, every was, time, every time Luke gives us a little something, you can see Luke going, "All right, this is here. You go. I'm going to give it to you right now." Sarah and I, I are take, reading Luke going, "Okay, here we go." Uh, yeah, it's the deep breath where I'm trying to also think at the same time, and I'm flipping through my notes. It is <laughs> the Norden bomb site of Luke Truxel. Um, yes. Is what is is is. <laughs> well, I was even I thinking Luke, about before. the what you like, um, what you sent us in like the group chat, right? Thinking about the combat yeah. chronology, and I was like, that's why I was like, oh, you can take over, yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, so the way that the the series kind of shows it is we have that big pub debate and fight over doctrine. And again, Mm -hmm. I know what they're trying to do. They're trying to explain doctrine without trying to get into the higher ups who are actually debating it. Uh, Because the guys that are debating it are like Ira Aker, who's the head of the eighth air force. Uh, You have Hap Arnold, who's the commander of the army air forces. You have the chief of staff of the RAF, Charles portal, who's involved. You have the prime minister. So they're not going to go into that because that requires a lot of casting. That's a whole nother level of storytelling that could be a diversion. You don't want to do that. So they're trying to use that. They're trying to explain doctrinal debates in a pub uh, and use that as the vehicle to do it. I like the idea. I thought it could have been executed a little bit better in the writing with a little more empathy than kind of animosity. Uh, But anyways, that debate happens before their Trondheim raid. And the Trondheim raid, the target for those uh, raids is uh, naval facilities, and also there's another uh, element of the Eighth Air Force hitting metalworks. It's one of their longest raids. Uh, it is a precision raid. Um, it's. I read through Crosby's diary of the Trondheim raid after I watched it uh, the second time, uh, and uh, basically, 
for the most part, it follows Crosby's kind of notes on the raid. Uh, but I will say he no indications in his memoirs that he got airsick during the raid. He says what fouled up his navigation. I can't remember what it was, but something about I can't remember what it was, but it was some technical details that uh, some of it was like trying to figure out landmarks and it was the kind of navigational stuff that is really boring to read and well, I don't know, not boring to some people, but probably boring to put on film. You know, uh, getting his math off, trying to get all of his beacons figured out, you know. And in fact, uh, Egan's not even on the raid uh, in the plane with him. It's actually the group commander, Harding. So he's not. So this all happens with the group commander, not uh, with uh, Egan himself. But uh, I did yeah, wonder if they uh, showed the air sickness, just to interject really fast, because they're like you've been saying, right, that they're trying to represent different experiences through the yeah. set of characters that they're using. And so I did wonder because I yeah, I just I wondered if they brought it in for that reason. But you can pick. Yeah, up. I th- yeah. I don't know. That's the thing I don't know about with Crosby. Uh, I don't know that. Uh, there's probably some other people who have studied the one deeper than I have that would. But uh, for the most part, they got the mission pretty on the nose from what Crosby's uh, memoirs say. And uh, they hit the target. He found the target due to the smoke screen. Uh, they go in uh, and uh, on the way out there, they try to help a bomber back. Uh, me, from, what I, from the notes I've read, that could get you in a lot of trouble let it slowing the group down to uh help a bomber out because typically you let them fall out of formation because if you slow the formation down you expose yourself to german fighters and uh again uh you're always thinking about protecting the bomber group as a whole or the bomber stream which is the groups of bombers on the mission protect the whole formation and by slowing the formation down as much as they did uh it did put them at risk and in fact uh, from what crosby said uh they had uh, actually, the Germans had actually started sending a lot of fighters that direction, uh, particularly those JU-88s, which would be capable of doing some damage to the formation from a distance. And um, basically, it really does go like how Crosby wrote it up, which is basically that he had to do some navigate changes in navigation to put them over Scotland. And due to some of the changes in course, the most of the German fighters never found them. And it protected not only the uh, the bomber that was wounded, but it also protected the formation better than what would have happened if they'd have just followed the pre-planned route. And that's how Crosby really gets kind of noticed, not just with the 100th Bomb Group. He actually got noticed by the entire 8th Air Force, like up at the top, who noticed this flight change uh, as well. So he was, he was getting noticed by a lot of people when he pulled that uh, course correction uh, after the raid uh, off. Uh, and it help them elude a lot of German fighters. Um, so again, it, it, I, it's one of those things where I don't have a lot to say because they really nailed it. You know, uh, the only thing I'd say is that I, I have doubts about the air sickness, but if it, if that would be a surprise to me, but if they nailed that as well, I would be, I'd be like, wow. You know, the thing I think I texted y'all about, uh, is that I was trying to reread the, I was rereading, uh, I have several books of just like indexes of missions, one of which is combat chronology. And I was just double checking. I, I looked at the 100th Bomb Group's uh, mission report. Didn't see anything that, you know, I could flag because let's face it, I actually started rivet counting because I was having a problem finding issues with this first episode. And so I was like, I'll, I'll do a little rivet counting, see if I can find anything. And um, basically um, what I found out is when I opened combat chronology, the next mission, 
is the beginning of Operation Gomorrah, the firebombing of Hamburg. Now, the Americans do attack precision targets at the ports of Hamburg, but the British that night after the Trondheim raid are beginning their firebombing of uh, Hamburg and the destruction of Hamburg in Operation Gomorrah. In fact, it's happening right as Egan and uh, Clevin are having that discussion about whether or not the British are actually right. And so that's what I found really interesting when I opened up Combat Chronology and I sent that message in the group chat to uh, Sarah and uh, Jason is that, uh, you know, I was like, oh my gosh. And again, I knew it was close. I knew we were getting closer to uh, Hamburg. And for those who don't know what happened at Hamburg, the firestorm that occurred as a result of Hamburg, uh, we by the 27th of July, winds kick up to 150 miles an hour. You have quite literally what is called a firestorm. Uh, temperatures, uh, if I'm right on this, uh, I had to look it up, uh, 1,470 degrees Fahrenheit during the firestorm. Uh, and uh, even reports of something like fire tornadoes or something crazy like that. I, I've seen all kinds of crazy reports. It, the, the stats and the, the, the records broke in terms of like bad things that happen to a city uh, in terms of a fire are really astounding. Um, Approximately 50,000 German civilians are killed uh, uh, during the entire Operation Gomorrah, uh, where Hamburg is effectively erased from the map of the earth, and um, 50,000 dead and 900,000 refugees that now have nowhere to go. And this is all beginning right as the series ends, as Clevin and Egan are having that debate of where, about whether you know maybe the British are right, maybe we should just switch to night bombing and do area bombing. And so I thought that... Once I looked at that and I saw that, I was like, oh, that hit hard. You know, that, 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 that scene hits very differently knowing what is, about, what is happening that night as they're watching sure. uh, the air raid. So, again, I, I, I was, it was one of those things I was doing a little prep and I just wanted to make, double check some stuff. And that's what I found. Sorry, didn't mean to get into all of that. That's great. Nope. Sarah? I don't have anything to add. I was like, very well said. All right. Yeah, I had one last thought, which was in, in all in all caps, and I sent this to Sarah earlier. Which is one billion reasons why I would not want to be in the ball turret. Oh my god, absolutely, absolutely not. We we talked about this when we did uh, the Memphis Bell Pod, Sarah, and I looked at it and yeah. said, "No, this is this is not a space for Jason." Uh, I'm the guy kissing the plane before I get on my 737 flight, which apparently is probably a good idea now after what I'm seeing with Boeing right now. Um, so let me ask you guys this as we head into next week. What are we looking forward to? What's our initial thoughts here? How do we feel as we head towards episode three of Masters of the Air? I will say I'm excited. Are we excited or are we enthusiastic? Yeah, I'm ready to go. Yeah, I was excited that they near the end of the second episode, I think it was, but I might be off on this because I only watched them once. Um, but the, when they talk about the importance of the ground crews and they're like, the ground crews don't get, you know, like whatever. I thought that was great uh, because I was hoping that they'll pull in, you know, because the hundredth bomb group is not in isolation. Right. But I realize and recognize you can only do so much, but I like they're bringing that in. I like that they showed in very subtle ways, the differences between the officers mess hall Right. And how there's like the China that they're eating, you know, like it was subtle, but I liked that they were doing, you know, like showing us that and just making those different distinctions for us. And also, I really liked it from like a gender perspective where they brought in, they called them boys who haven't been in combat. Right. So this 
discussion of how like, you know, serving in the military, but also then serving in combat somehow like makes you a quote unquote man. I was like, I was hoping they'll maybe do some more with that and also maybe some more with uh, trauma, right? I think I'm hoping that they do these things is what I'm kind of laying out and also pointing out to things I think they're sort of, you know, going to build on maybe in other episodes. I don't know. We'll see what happens. Luke? Well, I guess the obvious, because I saw the teaser and and I I think Sarah knows where I'm going with this, is um, the Schweinfurt-Regensburg mission. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, That is a, we always talk about the second Schweinfurt raid, which is uh, Black Thursday. It's on uh, 14 October of 43. Uh, That gets a lot of attention, but there's another one that is even worse. Well, I wouldn't say worse. Well, I guess it depends on what what worse is. Um, But um, they don't even succeed in hitting the target at all. The second Schweinfurt raid, they actually hit the target and they felt pretty good after it, despite the heavy losses. The the Schweinfurt Regensburg mission is just it's a, it's a it's a case of a mission that just about everything that could go wrong went wrong with it. Um, basically, they're supposed to have the hundredth bomb group as a part of the first leg of the mission, which is they're sending out two formations. One's kind of a they're attacking uh, the aircraft factories at Regensburg, but they're also the bait for the German fighters. And the idea is that they're going to pull those German fighters south when they go to Africa. And the second wave, which is going to hit the ball bearing facilities at Schweinfurt, their job is to go hit those facilities and follow in. So these two formations would kind of follow, and then one would divert, hit Regensburg and go south. The fighters would follow that one, and this other formation would hit the ball bearings. Now, what happened was, is again, uh, what I really liked about this episode is that they showed kind of what typical missions could look like and typical things that could happen wrong on a mission. Overcast clouds cause a real big problem, and they have to delay sending out the second force. And you won't see this probably with the 100th. You might hear about it. But instead of drawing those German fighters and pulling them, they did pull them. But then, because they have to delay the takeoff of the second force, basically the Germans turn back around, refuel their fighters, and they call in fighters from other parts of Germany, and then they pounce on that second force in even greater numbers and do considerable damage. So we're talking about something like 60 B-17 shot down. That doesn't even calculate all the battle damage losses. Uh, that And uh, there's just a lot of things that went wrong that raid. The casualties are really high, and they don't even hit the target. Awesome. Uh, and so uh, they're going to have to go after it again. Uh, that raid's being planned as the missions that we're seeing take place are occurring. Also, the infamous low-level uh, 1 August 1943 Ploesti raid, which is done by the 9th Air Force, is happening, is being planned, and is executed on the 1st of August 1943, right before that. And the uh, the, the 60B-24s that are uh, shot up there, I think, I think both raids had something around 60 planes lost. I'll have to double-check my numbers on that. But I know that the, the Ploesti one lost around 60 as well. And that took three eighth air force B 24 groups out that would have been used as well for these missions. And so one of the interesting things that I'm looking at is how they talk about that narrative and what's going on with one air force. How's it affecting, you know, operations over here. So again, I don't know if they're going to talk about the bigger picture, uh, but yeah, uh, basically uh, the casualties are going to really start mounting soon in the coming episodes. And I'm curious to see how they handle it how they handle the men dealing with it and how they talk about failure 
because what we have not seen really in the Hank Spielberg series is failure. You know, we've seen setbacks with Band of Brothers, but not failure. And this is failure. This 1943 air offensive that they are a part of will end in a loss, a complete and utter loss. There's no mistaking it. Uh, And so I'm curious at how losing is going to be handled by uh, this production team and these writers and how these actors are going to have to uh, portray it. So this is something I am actually curious about because this is going to be new. I also so would we got love some ups and downs ahead of us. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we, we, we're we're just now getting invested in these characters, and we know, as you guys have both said over the last hour or so, that we're going to lose some friends along the way. This is not going to be a, a totally happy series, uh, and I am. But based off this first two episodes we've seen, I'm excited. I'm ready to go. I'm I'm already looking forward to Friday. So. Um, guys, where can people find you guys online uh, between now and then if they have more questions on this show or your own work? Twitter is a great place, uh, which is what I'm calling it. Is so, it? Yeah. Handle uh, <laughs> oh. Dr. Dr. Sarah with an H Myers, M-Y-E-R-S, or you can just find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm also on Twitter. Uh, uh, I'm just not going to call it whatever it is today, uh, but uh, uh You'll find it. You'll find me under my name, uh, Luke Truxel, on Twitter. But I'm also where the sky is blue, because uh, I heard someone else say that on one of your previous podcasts. I was like, that's perfect for an air car historian. So uh, uh, I'm also under my name, uh, Luke Truxel, at uh, Blue Sky as well. Nice. All right, I'm guys. Also Blue Sky. Let's bring this in for a landing, and we will see you next week. Oh, that's right. You are on Blue Sky, aren't you? I tagged a different Sarah Myers, and she's like, hey, I don't think I'm the right Sarah Myers, but you seem very nice. So that's it works. <laughs> it. It yeah, works. It All fun. right, guys. We'll see you next week. Sounds great. Yeah. All right. All right. All right. Here we go. I'm stopping. All right. I'm hoping. 